I'm Lena Dunham, and this is my podcast, Women of the Hour. Turn off that music, it's not always about me. I want to tell you about an amazing podcast from Lenny Letter called Never Before. It's hosted by my actual real-life friend, Janet Mock. Can you believe I have a friend that amazing who agrees to talk to me? She's a true genius and a gem of a human woman. Never Before is an interview podcast that features radical, dreamy guests who can all be neatly categorized as people I want to be when I grow up, like Tina Knowles-Lawson, Auntie Maxine Waters, Rowan Blanchard, etc. And guess what? This week's interview on Never Before is with me, Lena Dunham. Janet has this special interview magic where she makes you open up like you never have before. And that magic, let's just say, did a little number on me. You'll hear me talk about my endless dream of scandals, my deep love for my sibling Grace, and how I craft a public apology, because I've had to do that, like, maybe a few times. So you'll hear that interview here now, but if you want to find the rest of Never Before, look for it on your favorite podcast app and have a listen. I promise it's worth your while. Welcome to Never Before. I'm your host, Janet Mock. Today's guest has been called the poster child of white feminism, a racist and classist, an admitted molester, and simply the worst. But people who know and love her call her Lena. Yep, Lena Dunham, the creator of the HBO series Girls, a writer, an actress, and an unrelenting advocate for reproductive rights. Lena is also the executive producer of my show, Never Before, and my friend. Like, laugh out loud, texting daily, sleepover, clothes swapping, friends. And we're also the kind of friends who check and challenge one another. So today on Never Before, I have an honest conversation with Lena about everything. Every controversy, every learning moment, and every apology. I've always been curious about what accountability looks like when you mess up so often and so public. And I go there with Lena as we discuss some of her greatest public fuck-ups. Like the time she perpetuated a racial stereotype about black men through the football player Odell Beckham Jr. Or the time she wrote about exploring her younger siblings' nether regions when they were kids in her memoir, Not That Kind of Girl. Or the time she said on her podcast, Women of the Hour, that she wished she had an abortion in order to destigmatize abortions. I know. I hope you're still listening. Because we get to the good she's done, like her fearless work on behalf of reproductive rights and her desire to use her access and her white girl privilege to create more space for women's stories. You may even get some tips about crafting the perfect public apology. We began our conversation at our beginning by talking about how she tracked me down after reading my book, Redefining Realness. I'm thrilled and honored and ready. How did we meet? I reached out to you because I had read your book, and so I asked my agents for your email address. How did they have it? Really? Agents know everything. And so they gave me your email address, and I remember you like played hard to get. Like You definitely took like a good week and a half to answer my email <laughs> and kept it real cool. And then I kept emailing you, and then finally you were like, okay, we can meet for breakfast. And I remember we had breakfast at The Smile, and you were like, are you vegetarian? And I was like, no, are you? And you were like, great, then I'll order bacon. And I was like, this relationship is going to go great. <laughs> I remember, I think I think you actually DM'd me. And I just thought it was so random. I was like, why is Lena Dunham DMing me? And then I thought, like, maybe Ashley introduced you to my work because I knew you both, you know, Ashley Ford, you both had, like, a relationship. And I we had, had like, a loving relationship through Twitter, just connecting with each other. 
And I remember screenshotting it and texting it to Aaron, my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time. And of course, he flipped because Tiny Furniture was his everything. So sweet. Um, your first film. And he has kind of been like a big fan of yours more than I was. I kind of was like a reluctant side eye for a long time. I was like, this white girl with this HBO show. <laughs> well, I think Ashley did introduce it to me because my younger sibling, Grace, who you've gotten to know, was sort of just entering the world of having conversations about trans issues and sort of coming into their own like gender nonconforming trans identity. And I said to Ashley, I was like, I don't feel like I fully understand it. I feel like there's either super academic stuff or I like watch Lee Bowery videos. And that's like my only understanding of like what it means to be trans. And Ashley was like, you have to read this book. And what I really came away with when I read the book was I was like, oh, this person is like a really brilliant women's self-help guru. And the angle of like politics, transness, identity, it's all there, but it's not what I was left with. And I was like, I just want to know her. That's so sweet. And I remember you had like a feminist dinner at your house that you invited me to, which was awkward, actually. Like, I thought it was so bizarre. It was really bizarre. (laughs) Basically, what had happened was it was right after my book came out and Grace and I had been exposed to this sort of public scandal, if you will, about the idea that we were like incestuous, basically. Kind people said we were incestuous. Less kind people said I raped her. For anyone who doesn't know, (sighs) neither is the case, though we do sleep in the same bed fairly often. So one of my friends was like, why don't we organize a dinner of like cool, radical women at your house? And I kind of very quickly realized that when you bring 12 feminists together over dinner, it's never just like, let's all just soothe each other. Like everyone is coming in with a fucking (laughs) agenda. And then also it's Lena Dunham's house. It just was like weird in that sense of like the power structure of it. Everyone was wondering, or maybe let me just use I terms. I was wondering what was everyone's angles and connections to you? Well, it was interesting. It was women I'd met online through sort of feminist dialogue. And I think my instinct as a person, and it's gotten me in trouble a lot, is I'm not a skeptic. Like, I am trusting until proven otherwise. Like, I've had a lot of I'm the complete opposite. And I know that about you because it really took me a while to soften you up. Like, I remember being like, I was working nine to five (laughs) and then the night shift trying to make you be my friend. Whereas I am like the easiest target. And And then every every time I've seen you, I've seen you so many times since. And you're always like... You know we're friends, right? (laughs) Do you know that? Do you know that I really feel close to you? Well, I always need to remind you because I feel like sometimes you'll come in and you'll like think that I'm like trying to have a business meeting. I'm like, I literally just want to hang out with you. I love you. You're my friend. It was the night before I think I did the the pilot for my show. Yeah. So popular that I had with MSNBC. I was like, huh, I feel like I'm on the verge of something. Like I'm being invited to Lena Dunham's house. You know, like I have a TV show coming out. I'm on the come up. (laughs) I was like... To me, you were already Oprah, so that's funny because I was like, you walked in like, I remember you were like, I'm going to be a little late because I'm going over some stuff with my producer. You like walk in in this like super chic outfit and like, I'm going to say something here that I feel comfortable saying, which is like, I don't think feminists are our most stylish group. (laughs) I don't think professional feminists are our, I think there were some clogs at the party. I think there is like a, a certain, not a uniform, but there's a sense of like, 
and I think it may be an older generation thing, and I've gotten to a lot of conversations around this, a sense of wanting to trample down femininity in order to be taken seriously, right? Like the point of like patriarchy is a sense of like having us run around in circles and be like, let's police each other's presentation over and over again in order to like not actually really say something of substance, yeah. which is the femininity is not the issue and the way we present is not the issue. It's the hierarchical way in which we pretend around one another. But um, yeah, the uniform, I, I don't wear the uniform. You wear the opposite of the uniform and you and I have the... I, I mean, do the most. <laughs> you do the most and you Actually, and I... Yeah, I guess. But I do remember feeling like across this table with a lot of agendas, you and I were actually connecting. I felt that too. I did. I really did. And you know, something I've always wondered with you, Tiny Furniture, how old were you when you made that film? I was 23 when I made that movie and then... And you also wrote Girls around the same time, right? Yeah, you created... I, wrote, I wrote Girls. That we, I made that movie in November. We went to South by Southwest Film Festival in March, sold it. I was signed immediately. And before my 24th birthday, I had already written the pilot to Girls. And we shot Girls like basically right after I turned 24. And Girls just launched you into this hyper-visible space. You were seen as an emblem of an entire generation of young women. I wonder, does fame stunt you in a way that you're stuck at 24 forever in a sense? It's actually such an incredible question that I wish someone had asked me sooner or I wish someone had told me about sooner because it's interesting. In ways, I feel 100 years old. Like when you take a lot of public heat, I've had public scandals around my family, around my sexual assault, both public scandals around things that were and weren't a result of my own ignorance. Like, I will take full responsibility for all the times that I, like, you know, popped off on Twitter and didn't think about what I was saying. But there was also a lot of times where, like, my very identity and the core of who I was was questioned. And it really, like, felt like being steel stuck in a fire and you're made stronger. I also have had, over the last six years, really serious health problems because I have endometriosis, which I think forces you, when you undergo, you know, five or six surgeries in your 20s and have the experience of your body basically revolting against you. Like I was on enforced menopause for two years. I felt like I was 100. I'd looked around at other 20-somethings and I felt like I remember once going to like a book fair with my dad and looking at a couple who were like eating tacos and buying comics and just crying because I was like, I never was that and I'll never be that. And my boyfriend and I will never have that experience and we'll never sit anonymously on a corner eating tacos so there's the ways in which I feel wise and ready, and then there's also the ways in which I feel like my friendships that I had when I was when I started the show, until I finished the show this past August, I didn't have any ability to look at them critically. I felt like socially I was a creature trapped in amber who would accept anybody who was interested in me. I allowed a lot of energetic leeches into my life because I was so... At the time, I didn't think I was taking in all the criticism, but... I felt so beaten down by it that anybody who would say to me, like, I like you, you're a good person, like, I let those people in. And I think it made me sicker. And so it was this weird combination of being, like, curled up asking for my mommy and just looking for whoever in the cafeteria wanted to sit with me and feeling like this, like, old Yoda figure who women would call up and be like, what do I do? I just accidentally said something racist online. Please help me. And I was the person who they called. So it's like those two realities exist together, if that makes sense. It does. I I also wonder, too, the, the sense of when do you know that you're an insider? 
like you start outside, right? Like you were doing your own YouTube videos at first and you snatch those down and then you did a series with your friends and then you, you know, then you go on to making this, you know, your first film and then your next film. And then that launches you into this whole nother space of being the center of a show, a creator of a show, of a whole universe. And then going to being invited into the party. How does it feel to be this outsider invited in and still negotiating that sense of? Because I'm always, and yeah. I'm always worried about like the for my own senses feeling like an imposter in so many spaces. Oh and God. I don't know how that hits you when you're like the number one trending topic every three months. Never because I like wore a great skirt, but <laughs> it's interesting you ask that because. I kind of never started to feel like an insider. And I've ultimately realized that that was another part of the arrested development is like, I'm still very stuck in many ways in the mentality of being like rejected at summer camp. I mean, to be totally frank, I was a kid with mental illness. I was always very physically sensitive. And then starting at 13, I was always sick, both with obsessive compulsive disorder and what I now understand was endometriosis. I would like go to the hospital every six months with a horrible stomach ache no one could explain. I had a lot of fear around social interactions. And so we see this all the time in Hollywood backfire, like the men who had pain and rejection as teenagers now start fucking models and Mm -hmm. making hideous business deals and crashing Maseratis. My reaction was more like, I don't don't think I'll ever feel. Like I remember going to the first Met Ball and I said to my mom, as long as I'm alive, I'm never going to feel like I'm welcome at this party. I'm just not like even when I walk in and people are saying my name and I experience like Lena, Lena, turn this way, turn that way, smile. Do you think you're the reason Hillary Clinton lost the election? I'm like, you're ascribing an awful lot of power to me that I don't have. I don't experience myself that way. And that has gotten me in trouble. Like the whole Odell Beckham thing came from me seeing myself as this. I got a girl at camp. Yeah, I saw Hmm. myself as a fat girl at camp. Just because you you mentioned the Odell Beckham situation, I feel like we need to explain it to people who may not have been privy to one of your 400,000 different controversies. Janet knows what it was. Janet was fucking texting with me every five minutes. (laughs) Poor Janet had to Olivia Pope that shit. (laughs) I was like, this one's really bad. Yeah. She was like, oh, God. Yeah, I mean, what that was was on Lenny Letter, which is my newsletter, Amy Schumer, who's one of my best friends, and I were having a conversation about the Met Ball and... We talked about feeling like really out of place in an event that's really a fashion event. And I described sitting next to Odell Beckham and feeling like he wasn't interested in talking to me. And then I sort of I projected onto him a narrative that he found me unattractive or wasn't able to engage with me because I didn't resemble like a more classic vision of female beauty. And then the Internet, very rightly so, was like, do you understand that you're contributing to, I mean, you can summarize this better than I can, like what the Internet felt I was contributing to. I think a lot of the controversy was around the racial dynamics, right? The sense of a white woman projecting all of these thoughts onto this black man, right? When the black man hadn't even said anything. And historically, we know from Emmett Till all the way through that white women have proclaimed these certain narratives onto these men, which had been dangerous and violent. Um, And I remember being, you know, as someone who cares about you deeply and loves you and who's, you know, tries to hold you accountable in our private space and our sacred space that we've created together. I mean, like, oh, you're not going to turn around on this one. Black women are done with your ass. Yeah. You know, it was interesting because that was the last straw. I mean, judging by Twitter, there were a lot of black women who were done with me already. And then that happened and it was like double done. And I didn't feel like a victim, but I felt sorry and I felt like I really owed it to people to not just give the apology, but to then do the research. 
the layers at which people can read it too. Like a lot of folk can look at that conversation between the two of you and laugh, and then a lot of people can be horrified. And I always think about how the ways in which we come to these certain experiences and you know, cultural pieces so differently, right? Well, no, I think what you brought up is really important, which is like, I have a lot of white girl fans who will defend me from something like that. But what I've had to say with gratitude, but with clarity is like, I don't experience that as a comfort. I experience that like I'm not doing my job because I haven't properly educated my audience about the issues that are essential. I don't want to be let off the hook by a bunch of white girls my age. So is that the space in which Lenny Letter came from? Is that the platform on which you wanted to launch it? Lenny Letter started because on my book tour, I was really moved by the audiences who came and talked to me about their problems. And I was also fucking bummed because it was all white girls. And I was like, I'm talking about experiences that are universal. Sexual rejection, misogyny, rape, being harassed by a teacher in fifth grade, being physically and emotionally abused by a boyfriend. Those aren't white experiences. Those are female experiences, whether you're trans, whether you're cis, whether you're white, whether you're black. And so to then see that the audience that I was attracting really looked like the girls on my show, give or take some pink hair. Was that your first interaction with actually seeing what your audience looks like? 100%. For the whole time I'd been behind a camera in a studio in Queens. I had no idea. So when people were like, no one cares about this who isn't a white girl, I was like, who knows? We didn't know. So when I got there and I looked out at my audience, I felt grateful to have this full room and a sinking sickness that I had not done my job. And after that, I thought, if Jenny and I can't take what we've created and bring in more voices and use the systems that have elevated me to elevate other people, then all of this will have been for nothing. And I think what is hard is that when I look at an issue of Lenny Letter, I feel proud because every single week there's diversity of sexuality, there's diversity of race, there's diversity of class. We're trying to tell really complicated stories about women that have often been buried in history. But a lot of people are never going to come to that because of their associations with me. And so there are times where I wish I could poof myself away and let the staff of Lenny and the work that they do speak for themselves because it hurts to think that these amazing women who have chosen to share their stories with us won't get as many listeners and readers as they deserve because of an association with me. I want people who think I'm a fucking piece of shit to still understand that Lenny Letter is a safe place for them. What part of you cares? Why do you care? So that's the one thing I feel like a lot of you know people who don't know you and who aren't in life with you don't understand that piece of you that cares so much. There's like a deep investment in ensuring that folk are included or heard and wanting to be seen and not like to, you know, justify any of the public um, missteps and mistakes that you've made, which you've rightfully owned up to. But there is a part of you that's like a bleeding heart, progressive liberal who like wants everyone to feel included. Where, what part, where did that come from in your, in your own experience? Such an interesting question. I mean, I think a few things. One is I was raised in a really liberal community. And the New York art world is a super white community, but it's a community that has a strong investment in making sure people's stories are heard. My mother was lived through civil rights movement and Vietnam and, you know, was protesting her face off before Roe v. Wade. And like those are values that we were raised with. But it's like I also think when you feel disenfranchised as a young person, That, like, you can go two ways. You can grow up and become a fucking bully, or you can grow up and feel a really, really strong need to not see other people suffer that way. It's not like I'm, like, think of myself as, like, some angel who wants everybody to 
have a chance. Clearly, I'm like very almost selfishly devoted to my own work and to my own voice and to my own style. But it really, really matters to me that mine's not the only voice. Like, But I also have always wanted to be really careful that I didn't try to project. I didn't try to seem like I was like making up for my sins by you know, bringing everyone. Like you, weren't, you didn't want to like perform wokeness or perform. No, because it's a... like people are smart. You know, they would get it if I was like on my fucking Twitter with like a bunch of Haitian children and a Black Lives Matter poster. Like mm-hmm. that'd be so mm-hmm. whack. Yeah. <laughs> so all you can do is put it into action. And do you remember your first political action you ever took? Not not as Lena Dunham, but as just like lowercase Lena. As lowercase Lena. My mom was a group, part of a group called Women's Action Coalition, which was like an organ, WAC, which was an organization of downtown women that included Cindy Sherman, Marilyn Minter, Elizabeth Murray, Louise Lawler, Lori Anderson, a lot of a lot of woke ass white women. It was not a diverse group, but it was a passionate group. And one of the things that they did was they were protesting. They wanted to put in a con ed plant on the end of the block where the fruit stand would be. So I walked around with my mom and my sister in a stroller with a sign that said, don't radiate me. And I remember just being like psyched because it was cool and all my friends were there and like it just felt important. And then a few times like my mother took me to a lot of reproductive justice protests. And then in high school, I was like really vegan. So I put a lot of signs up that were like meat is murder, dairy is rape, like reject, whatever. Like I was so annoying. Like I don't blame anyone for not wanting to be my friend. And I also put a stop to a water gun game that was happening throughout the school because I felt it mimicked the violence in Iraq. And everybody was like, we hate you. Like there was like a water gun game with like a big financial pool where if you won, you got like a thousand bucks. And I went to the principal and I was like, I think this is like really the word triggering didn't exist. But like, I think this is really dark for people considering the violence happening in Iraq. And like even the principal was like, you fucking loser. (laughs) But then all the water guns got taken away and strung up across the lobby. And... I was a horrible tattletale. Like a boy recently tweeted at me and was like, you're the reason that I went to rehab for six months because you told the principal I was on drugs. And at first I was like, I didn't do that. And I was like, fuck, I might have fully done that. Like I was a fucking tattletale, Janet. So my political act involved a lot of tattling. <laughs> like I would tattle when people like hooked up in school. So you're just a whistleblower. Yeah. And annoying. <laughs> what was your first political act as a public person? I think that my first real political act as a public person was the PSA that I made for Obama in 2012, which was comparing voting to losing your virginity. And I wrote it along with his campaign staffers, and they shot it in Judd Apatow's office in L.A. And it came out, and I remember staying up all night just reading these like comments that were just like, Lena Dunham is making a mockery of the American democracy. She's treating voting like it's sex. This is disgusting. This is despicable. By the night time, the night was over. It had like 10 million views. Like I was not prepared. And I remember I had just come from like my friend's house where there was literally an orgy going on. And like in London, <laughs> and I tweeted like, tweeted like, for anyone who doesn't like my PSA, you should also know that I just got up out of a pile of lesbians and I'm fucking wasted. Like I just like went for it. Like I was like, I just got out of a pile of lesbians and I'm ready to party. And like everyone was just like, shut up. But I was just like. I had no sense of being, like, politic. I was just like, how could what I said offend anybody? But I was also the person who, like, didn't understand how what the Dixie Chick said could offend anybody. Like, I was like, in New York, you're allowed to say you hate the president all day long and that you wished you lived in Europe for the rest. Like, I had no sense of patriotism. Who was writing about you at that time? Was it largely men? Yeah, it was, like, Breitbart. It was some guy called Steven Crowder. 
he dressed up as me, I remember. He, like, wore the same shirt and, like, a diamond necklace. And he's, like, a fat white guy. And I remember being kind of upset because he was able to do, like, a pretty good approximation of me. Like, it did not not look like me. And he, like, did a version of it that was, like, just making everything I'd said into some just, like, joke of millennial sluttiness. And I knew politics made people angry, but I didn't know how angry they made people. And it was the first time I was like, had that feeling. I was like, oh, my God. I was like, I can't win. I was like, because already there were tons of like woke feminists on the Internet who were like, this is a piece of trash and I want to use it as toilet paper. All of the controversy around the show about issues of inclusivity and diversity and intersectionality had already happened. So I was already getting messages that were just like, shut the fuck up. (laughs) Like you. I mean, it's funny because you what you white bitch. <laughs> I didn't want to say. I was it. like, say it. Shut the fuck up, you white bitch. And it's funny. At first, I was like, how could anybody be so rude? I didn't know the term tone policing yet, so I didn't recognize that. Like, when you say to someone like, "Excuse me, but I would never talk to you that way," that that's like you using your like little prissy white privilege. Like, I grew up in a house where people didn't even yell at each other, so I like the idea that someone's saying, "I once screamed at my mom, like, go fuck yourself and die," and it was like an issue for three years. So like. I didn't understand that smart, thoughtful people could write to you, like, take several seats and kill yourself. And that was their way of communicating. And now <laughs> I no longer assume when someone curses at me or tells me to go kill myself that they're dumb because they're probably not. They're probably angry and want to be heard. But at that point, I was like, that's not how you're supposed to talk to a lady. So I was like, it was hard for me to receive those criticisms. Talk to a lady. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, it was hard for me to receive those criticisms from people who were like, shut up and kill yourself. And then I also then had the alt-right saying, shut up and kill yourself. And I was like, oh, everyone hates me. That's a revelation. That's something that I've always found so intriguing about the particular space you take up in the cultural and political conversation is that you are equally as polarizing on all angles of the political spectrum. There is no, except for, I'd say, your core audience who loves you endlessly, which would be largely young white women who are fighting for reproductive justice, who are feminists, who are, you know, um, struggling with body issues. A lot of people who relate to me are people who are dealing with issues of body positivity and fat shaming. And also, I think a lot of people who have suffered in abusive relationships or experienced sexual assault have been come forward and really talked to me about how vocal I've been has meant to them. But besides that, bets off as to who's down and who's not. The first time I became really conscious of your politics was your book tour. Yeah. The way in which you and your sibling designed that to be part workshop to be part of, obviously, conversations between other women authors and then part uplifting voices of other folk whom people may not have heard of. What was the design process around that? Great question. I mean, I remember just saying to Grace, who's, like, so smart about the stuff, I was like, I just don't feel good about going out and peddling my book like a product. And a book is a product, but, like, it's also very much about me coming into my own as a woman and as a feminist and as an assault survivor. It was my first time really acknowledging that I had been raped because it was something that I had buried so much because there wasn't a language around it. Even though I went to a super liberal school, it was like there was no language around being like I was assaulted and I don't know what to do. And so I f- sort of felt like I had existed at school in this ring of shame of having like basically just been a girl who had sex with a gross guy who had a girlfriend. And I was like trying to outrun that reputation marker because I wasn't able to say to anyone, like, guys, he raped me. I did not make a choice, and that's not a part of who I am. 
So when the book tour happened, I just knew that I didn't want to go out and just go like, please buy my book and you'll get this accompanying button. I wanted it to feel like a space of unity. And it was also right before the midterm elections. So I remember, actually, my boyfriend was saying to me last night, I was like just saying how anxious I am about- Your rock star boyfriend. My rock star boyfriend. So handsome. Don't know how I got him in my life. He's very frustrated three quarters of the time, but he (laughs) seems to want to be around and it's shocking. But my rock star boyfriend, who is pretty beloved, like his fans love him. They always have. The only shit he gets is for dating me, to be totally honest. Everyone's like, you're the best. Why is that your girlfriend? That's like my friendship with you. Yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm sorry. Like, besides that, like, people are just like, you write great songs. You stand for really good things. You're such a sweet person. And he is, he's not a divisive person. He doesn't have a divisive bone in his body. Like, he's like very like Springsteen in the way that he likes to like bring people together with like a working class vigor. And I'm like, want to burn everything down. And it's like frustrates him. It does because he's like if you were like less like defiant and irritated, you could bring people into your space. And I'm like, I wasn't raised to do that. and I don't know how to do that. And I kind of don't want to do that. But at the same time, I want people to feel safe. And that's the thing that's always battling inside me is like my desire to bring people together in safe spaces and my desire to be like a fucking asshole (laughs) who just does what I want and says what I want because – I look at the history of the women in my family and I look at the history of the women who I admired and I look at all the female authors who I love who killed themselves because they couldn't even make their voices heard. And I'm like, oh, I'm here for all of you. I'm not even here for the people who are alive on this planet right now. Thinking about like you always bring up female writers. Why books? You know, most people there, you know, if you think about Didion or Efron, they went from books to screen and you started on screen in the sense of going into books and it seems like when you started writing personally specifically memoir that's when you really attracted the the ire of a lot of people who are just like isn't she heard enough she's already on the screen was that lost on you at all the sense of when you were going into writing your essays I definitely knew that there was something that was going to enrage people about the idea of like a 20 at that point I was 26 when I got my book deal being like telling people what they're going to do with their lives. Yeah. And like like, because everyone was like, it's part memoir, part advice book. And it wasn't really an advice book. It was a memoir. But I mean, I had always written prose since I was a little kid. I had gone to college for creative writing and all of my most profound relationships were with books and were with authors. And I think especially a lot of people will say when you're a fairly friendless child, I mean, I had some people, but not a lot of people you develop really intense relationships with like media. So for Jack, it was music. Like he had a lot of trauma in his childhood that he dealt with by listening to Springsteen and listening to Billy Joel and teaching himself to play the guitar and like getting into the punk scene. And like that was his form of healing. For Judd Apatow, his loneliness was channeled into an obsession with comedy and with comedians. For me, it was authors, particularly female authors. My dad would take me every Saturday to the Barnes & Noble on Court Street, and we would go to the poetry section, and we would just go through and find every book written by a woman that I hadn't read yet. And he had a rule which was like, you can't spend a lot on clothes, but you can always spend as much money as you want on books, which was like... I mean, within reason, I wasn't allowed to buy like Rizzoli books that were $1,000. But like he would go through and get me all the poetry paperbacks and I would just go home and read like like I wrote my first ever fan letter I wrote was to Nikki Giovanni in fifth grade. Wow. Each word was in a different color because I thought she would like that and notice it more than other fan letters. So I made my dad get me these pens and I was like, dear, in pink, Nikki in purple. (laughs) And she did not write back, but I'm not blaming her. What made you write to her? I had read her book Love Poems and... It was like part romance, part 
sort of like polemic about race, I felt just so understood reading it and so kind of galvanized. And I remember feeling like something had like cracked open in me in the way that she was able to be vulnerable. And I remember like just feeling like that was what I wanted to do with my life. I never thought at that age about comedy. Like, it's almost like I started doing comedy because I would say serious things and people would laugh at them. And I'd be like, well, guess I'm a comedian. Like, my heart was with these, like, super confessional female poets and with, you know, Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton and Virginia Woolf. And then I started to read, like, second wave feminist thinking. And it's still, to me, like, the greatest day you can have is just to, like, read a whole book by a woman in one sitting. I know. I, I, the, I remember the last time I had that experience was reading Barbara Smith's collections that she wrote alongside the Kitchen Table Women of Color Press Collective and just feeling like so filled and so seen and also made to like want to rally and do something. As someone who writes memoir, I, I find it completely liberating for myself, but at the same time really constricting and trapping of the people who love me, who share experiences and had share history with me. How do you grapple with writing about the people who are in your personal life that you then push forward public because of the platform in which you you stand on? It's hard. Like, I never, ever, as long as I live, will not have guilt about what writing about Grace did to Grace's life. Because I never imagined, like, Grace read that chapter and was like, yes, I feel seen, and this is what our relationship is, and take out this one detail. And then Suddenly, we were in the crosshairs of not just the alt-right, but also of feminists who were telling us that our relationship wasn't normal or that I had been grooming Grace for some kind of sexual assault. People were treating Grace's queerness and Grace's gender nonconformity like it was a result of the relationship that we'd had. And it was so painful for her, for them. I'm still learning my pronouns because it's been a recent transition. And it was so painful My whole life has been devoted to protecting Grace. Grace is my six years younger little baby girl. And so to know that Grace is being attacked for doing nothing but just existing was like, you never will move past that. It feels like I I drowned my baby in a bathtub. And I don't have a better way of saying it than that. Like, I was watching Girl on the Train great movie. And there's a part where a character literally drowns her baby in the bathtub. And I just started to weep because that feeling of like, I fucked up. I hurt the delicate thing. Even though Grace is a grown up now. Grace is a strong, independent activist with their own opinions who will say to me, actually, this experience activated me and taught me things and I don't regret anything. I'm also shocked by the silencing that folk have done in terms of Grace's agency in this in this narrative that you both share and the shared history of your siblinghood. And I always think about how just like how that goes on to the erasing of, of trans folk and queer folk and folk of color from a lot of the spaces that we're in, period. Well, they believe ultimately that Grace's transness, Grace's queerness is a disease that was acquired through mistreatment which is one of the oldest gaslighting tricks in the book that exists to silence people who are oh, different. completely. As someone who was, you know, I, I wrote extensively around um, around my child sexual abuse and the years in which I had to undo the learning, right? Like even wanting even wanting to write about that, I was even trepidatious in my in my book. Like I even say that I'm reluctant about writing about this because of the fact that people will link this to like the reason why I am the way that I am. Of course. And 
it's so interesting because Grace was who Grace was from the time Grace was born. My mom would push Grace down the street in a stroller and people would look and go like, you have the cutest son. And Grace would fully be in a pink dress and people would think that they were a boy. Like that was my mom was like, I could put her in a straight up tiara and heels and people would be like, what an adorable son you have. Because the intensity of Grace's androgynous or masculine energy was that powerful. And from the minute Grace had agency, Grace was dressing like a boy. And Grace has written about this. Grace was never female in the way that I was female. And I was always very, I mean, every picture of me is like me in like a tattered nightgown with like a flower in my hair. And I remember really strongly feeling like from the time Grace was born, Grace was like my child, like my little son. Like that's how I felt about Grace was like that I had been given a gift of like, I have a little son and I have to take care of him. And like, those are the intricacies of our relationship that no one will ever understand. And, like, that is probably the most painful situation that I've encountered, obviously, with writing memoir. There's the littler stuff, like, when your parents feel exposed or misunderstood or, like, it's hard to write about my reproductive illness or my abusive sexual relationship or my rape without that also feeling like it projects onto Jack because it gives people a glimpse at what he's dealing with in terms of a partner, like, It's not super sexy to be like a rock star whose girlfriend's like, and I haven't been able to have sex in six months because I have a broken (laughs) vagina. It's like, go date a model. Like, like, it's really like a toughie. Like, why is he not dating a nasty gal model? Nobody understands. One of the things that I admire so much about you is your willingness to not just be open and vulnerable, but your willingness to make mistakes publicly. It's something that I find myself tripping up over is the fear of making a mistake and being called out for something. And so rarely am I called out for much from people who actually care and that I actually respect. What is your process like when you fuck up? I think the first thing that I do, obviously I'm defensive like everybody else, and I don't like to be called out. It doesn't feel good. I don't ask my boyfriend or my parents. Like, I don't handle criticism well. Like, I always would be like, if my parents, like, found my homework and it wasn't finished, they'd be like, you didn't finish your homework. And I'd be like, but you're a terrible parents and all you do is travel. Like, I would always turn it around on them. So it's barely been an education for me to be like, okay, messing up is a part of being human and it doesn't take away from your humanity. In fact, it adds to it. And Usually I do like a gut check. Like I just go like I look at the crit- I read through the criticisms and I just go like do I feel in my bones that these people are right and this warrants an apology like both intellectually and spiritually. And by the way like when you talk to like your publicist or something they'll also always be like don't apologize it's just going to extend the media cycle and I'm like I don't care about extending the media cycle. I'm fine in my fucking house. I just want people to know that I hear them. What constitutes a strong, fair, redemptive apology? for you? I never really think about the concept of being redeemed because to be totally frank, I kind of feel like I'm so far past that with so many people that like, I don't think about it as a way to get people to like me again. And I think if you do that, something really inauthentic comes out of you. I just think about it as a way to show that I understand. So the first thing I say is I'm sorry, because you need to say that clearly without any ifs, ends or buts. So it's not like a housewife's apology of like, I'm sorry if that hurt you. It's not like, I'm sorry if that hurt you, but you were really rude to me and you didn't serve enough Chardonnay. Like, it's like, <laughs> I'm sorry. Here's why I'm sorry. Here's the critique. And here's what I recognize about the critique. Here's how I'm going to do better in the future. That to me is just the roadmap. I don't then look at the comments to hope that everyone goes like, you're forgiven. Like a lot of the comments are like, you're still a piece of shit. And I'm like, great. But at least I've told you that I hear you. And a complaint that I get a lot is people being like, you keep apologizing. When is your apology meter going to run out? Like, when are people going to be fucking sick of you and cancel you because you can't stop fucking up? And I'm like, 
if you put out as much content as I do, you put yourself on the line for as many issues as I do, and you speak as much about your personal belief system as I do, like, you are just going to fuck up. Like, if you look at the history of people who have been, like, like them or hate them, prolific thinkers over time, like, they've had some scandals. And nobody, especially somebody who came into the public eye, not particularly political and not particularly awakened, like, has has a blemish-free past. So I don't think about it as being like you run out of apologies. I just don't want to make the same mistakes over. So it's funny when people are like, you already fucked up about Odell. Then you said this thing about abortion. I'm like, those two things have nothing to do with each other. I'm like, that was horrible, that situation with Odell. I feel I will always work to think about things differently. The fact that I then misspoke about reproductive justice on my podcast, that's a totally different issue. And also that's an issue that I've devoted huge percentage of my life Mm -hmm. work and income to so did that one hit you harder than most of them because you've been in this space for so long it felt bad because it wasn't like a statement i could stand behind it wasn't like i was like you guys was making a great point like i was making a joke and it just wasn't funny and so that one was really rough and it was rough on the people that i work with because i think they were like that podcast is such a sacred like healing space for us that to have that negativity bleed in was really tough but also, yes, it was tough because that was my first political issue and it will probably be my Your last. level politi- of engagement was so deep. Yeah. And I work I'm in touch with people from Planned Parenthood and NARAL and Center for Reproductive Rights constantly. And like the first thing I did after that was go to Planned Parenthood and get a media training because I was like, I won't let that one happen again. But what was also hard was like to see how excited people are to come for you. Like and so I guess. When you feel like you've been like fighting that uphill battle for six years and then you say one thing on your podcast and everyone's like, go kill yourself. You're not doing anything for this movement. You're like, I have ate, slept and breathed this dialogue and this rhetoric for as long as I've been alive. And I just like don't believe in a world where I say that and get death threats and Mel Gibson beats women and says he hates Jews and it gets an Oscar. Like I just I'm I'm angry about that. And something else that you were you know, incredibly invested in was the election of our first female president. And she won! <laughs> <Hillary Rodman Clinton. laughs> she won, she won, she won! You poured yourself into that campaign so hard that you, for, you not forced, but you pulled me down to North Carolina I with did. you to go and, and campaign awesome. and, and rally the troops to go vote. I was so annoying. Like, I was the last person my friends wanted to hear from for like 18 months because they knew it was either going to be like complaining about the election or asking them to do something. And, you know, you said something so poignant, which was um, it's a privilege to be heartbroken by the system for the first time at age 30. Obviously, you're fine. But how are you how are you able to step back up and continue to be deeply engaged in this work? I think we just have no choice right now. And that, like, you know, our heartbreak has to be overpowered by our anger and our sense of engagement and activation. And I think recognizing that my shock Every friend I talked to who was a person of color, who was a trans person, who was an immigrant, was like, yeah, this is the system that we've been part of. Like, Donald Trump is nothing new. Donald Trump is something that's new to white girls who were raised in downtown New York. Donald Trump is nothing new. He is the embodiment of what everybody else has been facing for their entire lives. So what do you say to those white girls who helped elect him, the 53 percent? It's complicated because part of me is like, fuck you. But I also think that I love you no matter how you voted. And even if you voted against your own rights, I'm for you. And even if you voted against my rights, and even if you voted against the rights of my friends who don't look or act or believe like you do, 
I'm for you because even if you voted yourself into this pickle, I still believe you deserve everything you were promised by a candidate who believes in your humanity. For me, a huge part of feminism is like, like, this is something Hillary Clinton said. Someone asked her, like, what do you think about the fact that millennials aren't for you? And she said, it doesn't matter if they're for me because I'm for them. And that's how I feel like if you like me, if you hate me, like I am here and I won't until I die, I will be here for you. I'm here for you if you wrote a shitty thing about me on Jezebel. I'm here for you if you don't know who I am. I'm here for you if you think I'm a racist. And I'm here for you if you think I'm a delusional downtown diva. Like, I love you. Even if you don't want my love, I still love you. Thank you so much, Lena. Thank you, Janet. It was really moving to talk to you. I love you. (laughs) I'm here for you, even if you don't want it. If you've enjoyed our show, subscribe to it and rate it on Apple Podcast. I know you hear that all the time at the end of every single podcast, but it's super important and it helps us reach more listeners who need to hear from Miss Tina, Lena, Maxine, all of the faves. So go do it. So since Lena was our guest this week, I'm going to tease our next guest. He's the epitome of Black excellence, a genius. And that's not just hyperbole. If he walks across the stage, he's snatching all the trophies. Never Before is a product of Pineapple Street Media and Lenny Letter. It was produced by Jenna Weiss-Berman, Ricky Novetsky, Josh Gwynn, Liz Watson, and Barry Finkel. Our executive producer is Lena Dunham. Special thanks to Max Linsky and Ben Cooley. Our music is by Hansdell Sue. Hey, I just want to give you a heads up. We're going to be off next week, but don't worry. Just take it as a chance to live it up, get some sun, read a book, watch some trashy reality television, spend time with your loved ones, then come back prepared. Because, honey, it's going to be even better.